I think she handles the bow and arrow superbly. Welcome to the First Impressions Podcast. We talk about our love for Jane Austen and give a big middle finger to all those haters. I am Kristen, and I am joined by co-host Maggie. Hello! And we are super excited today to be talking about, we've decided to delve into all the Pride and Prejudice adaptations we hadn't handled yet. So we recently did the 2005 Pride and Prejudice, a review of that movie. And today we are doing a review of the 1940 Pride and Prejudice starring Laurence Olivier and Greer Garson, which I have to say, every once in a while, I'll be talking to like a friend or family member or some some other Austin fan, and I ask them what their favorite adaptation is, and they'll drop that their favorite movie adaptation is this 1940 Laurence Olivier version And I have to admit, I had never seen it up until, you know, a few weeks ago. I have to admit, I always kind of thought it was maybe an affectation. Like, I hate to say that, but like, it was just the aesthetic, right, of the 1940s, like, movie glamour that they were, like, attracted Uh, to here. Well, my favorite version is the original 1940s screen adaptation starring (laughs) Sir Laurence Olivier. And you're like, okay, whatever. (laughs) But I can't believe how what wrong I was doing to this movie because it's an absolute freaking delight. And I can it's totally so fun. see, it's I can so totally see fun. this was your first exposure to Pride and Prejudice. Like how I could totally see how this would still be your favorite. It was really cute. It was so cute. It was, as we will note, amazingly Hughes fairly close to the plot of the book, which is pretty amazing for, I feel like the screenwriting of the time. And also, we we know from Devney Loser's book, The Making of Jane Austen, there's a long chapter about all of the various scripts and all of the various screenwriters who took a shot at this and the insane stuff they inserted that it finally got (laughs) caught, that got cut, rather. 
but yeah, I guess we should say, first of all, overall impressions you've already said was delightful. Yes, I, I would say, I think this might have been kind of our reaction to 2005, although I think I enjoyed this one more. But I will say, as an adaptation, not great. <laughs> but as a screwball comedy, romantic comedy, so fun, so fun. Just so fun to watch. Bay and I watched it together, and we were just, couldn't believe how tickled we were through the whole thing. We really liked it. As an adaptation, of course, there were a lot of liberties and some things added that don't necessarily strike the same note or the same tone as in the book. And Pemberley is cut entirely. Mm-hmm. However, there were some things that at the core of this movie that I thought were true to the book, enough for me not to be constantly irritated. Right. You know it is I mean? super recognizable as Pride and Prejudice. Yes, it is. It, yeah. Yes, it is. You're it's not, not like what character's this? name. It's, it's not like your Hallmark movie where they yeah. just try to like drop <laughs> references. Like it is it is legit Pride and Prejudice. The trailer and the movie, I think it's just the trailer. Watch the trailer for the movie. It says based on the most famous novel ever written, but also based on the most famous play ever produced mm-hmm. or whatever, which is of course Helen Jerome's adaptation for the stage which had the super sexy Darcy, which was mm. like the, the onset of, the, of the, the Darcy-centered story and script. And Olivier definitely ticked that box, I felt. He's written in his own autobiography that it was hard to make Darcy into anything but a, a prig, you know, an unattractive prig. However, I think when Olivier is on the screen, you cannot take your eyes off him. Oh, I mean, it's Lawrence fucking Olivier. I mean, he... <laughs> Bay was like, who is that guy? And I was like, are you serious? He is the most famous actor of his generation. He is a, a legend on stage, on screen. I mean, I can understand why when they were making the 1995, Colin Firth was kind of freaking out, like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> People are going to be comparing me to Sir Lawrence Olivia. I mean, he's just a legend. And I can't remember the last time I saw him in something. And when you see him in, you, you get it. Yes, yeah, like you get it. I was a little tainted because before I had ever seen this movie, I had read an unfavorable comparison of Olivier that was saying first performance was better. And what this person was saying, and I wish I could credit this person with their thoughts, but I no longer remember who said it. I just remember reading an article. Anonymous Twitter user. (laughs) Yeah, no, it it was an actual article, but they had said, you know, Darcy is stiff and with sort of formal and withholding. And Olivier's sort of strength as an actor was that he also held a lot back. So that was a powerful performance Mm -hmm. without going over the top. And they said a stiff actor in a stiff role was wrong for the character. When we see Firth with so much pent up physicality and angst, that that's more powerful. And at the end of the day, I do prefer Firth's portrayal but I could, uh, I could totally see the people who think that Olivier is the best Darcy hands down. Yeah. And they give that what I liked about the script, too, is they give him a ton of opportunity to actually be quite charming. Much mm-hmm. more screen time than the original Darcy even has at the book. And he shows that he does have good manners, even though she does overhear the slight I mean, are you sort of on the same page about him? Yes. So, okay, let's just dig into the whole Darcy thing, because I think that's one of the big differences between this and other adaptations. So I 
don't even in my mind compare Olivier and Firth because they are in completely different movies. Yes. The 1940 Pride and Prejudice is a screwball comedy. Like, you can tell it's a screwball comedy because everyone is speaking so fast. Bay looked at me and said, can we turn on captions? I can't understand what anybody is saying. <laughs> That's like the hallmark, right? It is a romantic comedy. Uh, Darcy in the 1940 Pride and Prejudice is very charming throughout the entire thing. There's none of this, oh, well, maybe he has an anxiety disorder. Maybe he's just shy. (laughs) No, he is super charming and personable, but he's also kind of an asshole. And so the reason why she hates him is not because he's like standoffish and doesn't talk to anybody. She hates him because she hears him slight her. They really play up the whole pride and prejudice. She's immediately made up her mind against him because he said something rude about her, which fair, I, you know, but they, they provide so many opportunities for him, like you said, to be actually very charming. There's no awkwardness with this Darcy. There's just like the occasional sometimes being a dick. What he doesn't do need think? to be tortured and brooding in this. Like, that's not what we're here for. We're here for like funny like I said, again, romantic comedy. That's what this is. Girl meets boy. Girl hates boy. Then the girl realizes, you know, boy's not bad. And then they all fall in love. What did you think about the changing of the line when he insults her? It is less personal because mm-hmm. he does. He says, instead of saying, I am not in a humor to give um, consequence to young ladies who are slighted by other men. That's very p- more personal. He says... I don't want to give consequence to the middle classes at play, which is more yes. class-based, like putting her down still, but not as a reject of, of other men, but as uh, someone yes. who's going to be chasing him. All of that is completely purposeful because the point is to just show him as a snob. Like Lizzie's main objection to him is actually, until she finds out about the whole Jane Bingley thing, in the very beginning, it's just that he's a snob. Right. So instead of insulting her personally as like deflecting his own uncomfortableness in the situation, it's just, you know, ugh, poor people. Yeah. But what happens later, what they've written into the book is they have this sort of reconciliation at the Netherfield garden party, right? Right. Yes, Which is what the they Netherfield did in the ball. The Netherfield garden they, party. <laughs> they have a charming archery scene where she sort of pokes at him about Wickham and he sort of very earnestly says, a gentleman doesn't have to explain his actions because I expect that people will assume good intent on my part. And then they sort of reconcile where he's like, can we start again? And it was, it's only then where Lydia and Kitty come and they're being ridiculous and Mr. Collins comes and he's being ridiculous. And they have this very explicit thing where like Darcy's leading Elizabeth in to dance with her. And then he just bails. He's like, oh, I hope you enjoy the dance and like leaves. And she says like, that's crappy friendship. Like they've just reconciled their friendship. And so that is an extremely personal sort of slam, which really does make you think, wow, that was a jerk move. It almost felt like they had to keep coming up with reasons for her to dislike him because she would have, she would have a scene with him. So, or even after the first time he insults her at the assembly ball, right. Then he purposely gets someone to introduce them because he does notice her and he does like her right off the bat. And he's wonderful and charming. And she's like, oh, but I hate him, blah, blah, blah. But they have to keep introducing ways after they have these amazing conversations to then have him do something that's just very snobby. So she hates him (laughs) because 
he's clearly into her the whole time. Yeah. Very so it's actually, I'm not sure how much it works when he, you know, the whole like in vain, I've struggled. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you? Cause it looked at me like you were liking on her from the very beginning. Yeah. Well, but you have to keep throwing obstacles in her way. So we get that like push pull that audiences love so much. Yeah. Well, when he's at Rosings and, and discovers her there, he immediately goes to her. He's like very genteel and he's like, wants to be around her. And it's very clear. It's so obvious. It's, it's so, so obvious. obvious. Yes. It's and cute. It's know, cute. And, it. and he does display some sensibility then. And Lady Catherine de Berg, who I, I know some people don't like the twist that in the end, she's just trying to test Elizabeth to make sure she's, you know, worthy of Darcy. Oh, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about that for a second, just in case people haven't seen the movie. So they have Lady Catherine show up at Longbourn and be like, are you engaged to him? Will you promise me not to? And, you know, Lizzie, of course, is like, no, I will make no such promise, blah, blah, blah. And they go back and forth. And then Lady Catherine leaves gets into her carriage and Darcy is there. And she goes, you are right. She does really like you. I suppose that you deserve each other. You need a woman like her who will stand up to you. And my jaw dropped. <laughs> I know. She it even said you were a, a spoiled child. Such um, a twist. I know, such a twist. I mean, at Rosings, she is trying to get Darcy to pay attention to Anderberg. And she is trying to say, well, your mother used to say to me, oh, I have one son, you have one daughter. Shouldn't they get married? And so clearly she's invested at the beginning in Darcy, you should be marrying my daughter. But when by the end, she's a practical woman and she's like, yes, she'd be good for you and like gives her blessing. And on it, and he's so sweet when she's he's she comes out and he's so nervous and he's he's like, Does she really love me? I mean, it's just this really charming, cute thing where I, um, I loved it. I actually I, yeah. really did love it. And and he says, no, Lady Catherine loved how rude you were to her. Yeah, no, she loved it. Yeah, when he goes back in to like propose again. He's, and she's yeah. like, oh, it was so rude to her. And he goes, oh, it's cool. She really likes it. I don't, I didn't hate it at all. I, I thought it still gave Elizabeth a, a chance to show her background, backbone and to stand up to Lady Catherine. But it also was just this delightful, you know, busybody character who's sort of like, yes, okay, I, I, I approve. It actually <laughs> makes Lady Catherine a lot more interesting too, I think. Yeah, like she had, when we left her at Rosings, she very clearly was against this match because it meant that he wouldn't be with Anne. But then in the meantime, she clearly like loves her nephew enough yeah. to want him to be happy and to want him to be with her and with the right woman and has enough good judge of character to see that Lizzie is awesome. Yeah. I don't know. I just really liked it. It's so hard to surprise a Jane Austen fan with an adaptation, you know, like how often does that happen? And I just, I was so, I just loved it. But then I looked at Bay and I said, but what about the shades of Pemberley being thus polluted? <laughs> and he's like, I guess she's okay with it. <laughs> what did you think about Greer Garson's performance? Because I think there's a lot more disagreement there. Oh, I thought she was great. Uh, what I really loved was that she was 36 playing this yes. role and looked stunning. I mean, yes. she turns around in her first scene and the light is just like, you know, screen goddess, like golden Hollywood screen goddess, of course. Some people think that she's Elizabeth walked off the page, right? Other people don't like the portrayal. They they call her a liberty gibbet. Um, Olivier liberty gibbet. Liberty gibbet. Liberty, liberty gibbet. gibbet. Liberty gibbet. 
Uh, a lot of people, um, apparently you're an expert on how to say this word, I guess. I don't know. I've just been saying that for a long time because I also used to watch a lot of old movies. <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, so yeah, some people think that it's the totally wrong port's tone to strike with Elizabeth, who's supposed to be very down to earth. Whereas this Elizabeth is very much like her sisters and with her sisters and not embarrassed by her sisters. And kind of, they kind of went the Kira Knightley route, right? Where she's, she's just part of a happy family. But Olivier did not think Greer Garson was right for the part. Well, do he you know called why? Her, he called her silly and affected and does not believe that she portrayed Jane Austen's character. Can um, I tell you the real reason? Yeah, because he wanted to bone Vivian Lee. He was boning Vivian Lee. Well, he wanted to do he, it at his he, Yes. So Lawrence Olivier and Vivian Lee were married to different people. They were having a very public affair. He wanted Vivian Lee to be Lizzie so they can be in a movie together. And I think that he always was pissy. <laughs> that they did not put her in it. But of course, there's a lot of, first of all, there's a lot of interesting connections between this film and Gone with the Wind. Because of course, Vivian Lee made her big film debut. She was a British actress. She made her big film debut in Gone with the Wind the year before, which was directed by David O. Selznick, who actually produced Pride and Prejudice. And that's another one of the big reasons why they set this version, you know, 30 years later, because they could reuse costumes from Gone and with I, the Wind, of which they had so many. <laughs> I, did, I do think that they did reuse the costumes, but the other argument that I've heard about why they did that is because they thought Regency and Empire Waste styles would not interest people or look good on the screen. With that black and white filmmaking, I honestly really agree with them. So they pushed it up to like the 1830s so they could have these dramatically beautiful costumes, which are very interesting and fun, right, to the viewer as well. Right, but here's the other thing about that. I actually think the reason for doing that is because this film was supposed to be in color. Oh, but was it? David O. Selznick used every reel of Technicolor film that MGM owned shooting Gone with the Wind. So when it came time to shoot Pride and Prejudice, it had to be in black and white because they physically didn't have the film. Oh my God. Yeah. So I actually think that this these costumes were meant to be shown in color. Because I mean, look at them. They even talk yeah, about the colors in the first scene. You know, oh, Jane, you'll be in pink and Lizzie, you'll be in blue. And I mean, the costumes are, it's an explosion of color. And you look at, you know, the dance scene. I looked at Bay and I said, they spent a ton of money on this movie. Like they didn't, this was a lavish production. Yeah. And yet in black and white. And again, this is from IMDb, so, you know, grain of salt, but it makes complete sense to me that they filmed in black and white, meaning to film in color, but just simply didn't have it's the film. That's such a shame because it was frustrating for me to watch this movie and wanting to see the colors. Oh, I would have loved to have to seen do. a colorized version. I know like colorized blah, people get upset all the time, but these costumes, you just, they're just begging to be in color. Yeah, they I think are. they really are, but they're so ridiculous. <laughs> I just, the impracticalities of dressing like that in real life 
just seemed so, I mean, these, there have, you know, six women because it's the daughters and Mrs. Bennett and they're all in a room. Can you imagine how loud it would be trying oh my to walk God, around with rustling. all that, how hot they all must have been? And I mean, Kevin made Ugh. the point too. He, he, he's like, they're so drowned in these costumes that when Charlotte Lucas comes on the screen and everyone's like, oh, she's so plain, she's so ugly. He's like, I cannot differentiate her looks at all from any of the other women. He yes, honestly he could not even pick true. out which one was supposed to. I was constantly getting Kitty and Lydia confused. I couldn't <laughs> tell. I couldn't tell them apart. Yeah, I think that's a huge issue. Um, it was just borderline ridiculous. Maybe that's just because we're looking at it from a modern perspective. Yeah. But all of this, you know, it really also just drives home this idea that so much of women's fashion from that time period on was just about like hobbling women, basically. If you keep them drowning in layers and like, where are you going to, how can you, you can't get a job. <laughs> you can't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yes, it's a way of showing your wealth, right? Like if you have that much fabric that you're wearing around on you, you have a life of leisure, but it's also a way to keep women trapped at home because they can't practically go out. Oh, can we talk about how the Bennett's not poor? Oh, yeah. Well, they, they are, well, they are constantly referred to as like the middle class, which is not even accurate. I mean, the Bennett's were not even middle class in the actual story. They are richer than 99.9999% of people in England. They are gentility. They're just poised on the brink of not being gentility. And I think the reference to the middle class is supposed to help us understand the divide between Elizabeth and Darcy. Yes. I also think that, I mean, the Longbourn is really nice and they have all those beautiful gowns. She does not repeat any wardrobe in this whole movie. Lizzie has a different stunning gown every they, scene. They do uh, still keep the detail of the entail and they are very explicit about it. And they're constantly yes. referencing when Miss, Mr. Collins will inherit. And then at the end, you know what? And this is a slightly different point. But the social standing of the Bennets is made very clear throughout the movie, especially at the end, after Lydia has eloped with Wickham. Mm -hmm. I think they still had to translate that for a modern audience, even at that time, to, to talk about the social disgrace that would have involved. So what they have is the Bennets preparing to move to Margate because they've been disinvited from the assembly balls because they've been besmirched by the scandal and I actually um, really liked that. I liked I mean, it a we, lot in, too. In the novel, it's just people talking about what the effect will be. But then in the movie, you see like, oh, they've they've not been allowed to come in public. Like they've been disinvited from, like there are legitimate social yeah. consequences. And the house, is, the house is in chaos and they like, well, you can't bring your mu music box. You can't bring your parrot. And then the parrot's like, my poor nerves. Which yeah. Hysterical. <laughs> I bet you loved that. I loved it so much. And, and um, Lady I, Catherine comes in and she sits on the music. It's funny. It's it's, it's I, really well done, but it also ma is, is making it very clear what's happening, which I really appreciate it. I thought it was really well done. One of the things I thought was interesting, what did you think? I did not think they effectively set up any kind of love between Lizzie and Wickham. She's clearly um, sympathetic to him. But when she hears that Lydia has eloped with Wickham, she is surprised, but she doesn't seem particularly like upset at all. She almost like smiles in a way like isn't this weird um and i don't think they set up lydia as a total airhead until she comes back and she's like oh it's great i have a husband now right so yeah, all no, i agree i think all of that 
I think all of that is a function of time uh, and that, you know, this is not a miniseries. This is a two hour length film. I totally agree with you. And I think we see, we meet Wickham right away. Yeah. He's yes, there we from do. the very beginning. And, and I think he and Lydia have very snappy, very grown up adult sexy dialogue. Yeah. I thought I, they had a lot of chemistry. I think that Wickham, I agree with you that we don't see like Lizzie could be maybe falling for him. I think it's more of a way for Darcy to be jealous. Yeah. And to seem like a bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I thought his performance was great. What about the, the secondary cast of characters? Did you like the mother? Do you mean Mrs. Bennett? Yes. Oh, yeah. I thought she was great. I actually really liked that they played up the rivalry between Mrs. Bennett and Lady Lucas. Oh, with the carriage race. Yeah. That was funny. Which, again, just, like, adds to that comedy because it's all about this comedy, right? Yeah, so like you're saying, the, the screwball two, comedy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I appreciated that. I thought it was fun. I thought Mr. Bennett was great. I was getting very Rex Harrison vibes. I don't know from Mr. Bennett. Um, Rex Harrison is the actor who was in My Fair Lady. Oh, he oh. was in the original Doctor Doolittle. He was very famous on stage. He was also, I think, in the original cast of Camelot and My Fair Lady, both with Julie Andrews. Uh, very famous British actor, and so very I felt droll. like, yeah, I felt like the the dad was kind of giving me those vibes. Which yeah, I liked. He, I was I was, was picking good. it up. And he had good lines. And some of the lines that they inserted in the script were honestly good and funny. Like, maybe we should have drowned some of them at birth. I did you know, not like, like that line. I thought it was horrible. <laughs> no, he's just joke. I mean, he's making it, he's making it so ridiculous that, you know, he's Mrs. Bennett is always almost making it sound like she's sorry that she had these children. And so yeah. he's taking it to the ridiculous extreme. I don't I know. I, I just thought, I thought it went too far. I was like, Jesus. <laughs> Wow, that got super dark. <laughs> I, I did. Say- did you notice his little like library ladder thing that he had? Oh yeah, that piece of furniture that was rad. He had a chair that like unfolded to a step ladder so he could get to the top of his library bookshelves. I thought that Mr. Collins being a librarian, uh, <laughs> I understand why they did it. They didn't want to like put any men of the cloth down or whatever. I was a little bit like why you gotta why you gotta hate on librarians i don't we don't want him in his in our ranks but yeah totally i thought he was great i i loved a lot of the character things he did i loved when he was proposing to lizzie that he's down on his knees and so then he has to walk on his knees as she's moving away yeah um they did they had that great this great uh, during the proposal, he's like, you you should consider no other offer of marriage will ever be made to you. And her reaction was great. She's just, she's winded. She just sits down and says, well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was really funny and it was well played for the humor. And that's the thing about Pride and Prejudice. To have fun, you really have to understand the humor in there, I think. I mean, I know I already said this about 2005, but it's just not as fun. But anyway, let's talk about the other performances. I thought Wickham was a great performance. I thought Lydia and Kitty did did great. And um, I have to admit that they do all have that, like, moment where they're all talking at once. So maybe I was too hard on Joe Wright that, you know, they, they did do this sort of, like, young, flighty girls all saying things at the same time. We also talked about how Mary is, in your words, the fucking MVP of this movie. She was, that actress was so She was so funny. She was so hilarious. Like, you don't think of Mary as being like the, uh, so just like in 1995, where you have uh, Mariah Lucas, who I I forget the actress's name, but I love her so much. She's just like in the background being funny. 
that was Mary here. I thought she was so good. Whoever that actress is, she was just like firing on all cylinders. Um, but to get back quickly to what you were saying about everybody talking at once, the difference is the 2005 movie is a sweeping romance. The 1940 movie is a screwball comedy. Everybody yeah. talks at the same time. It's yeah. part of the genre. Like that's part, that's the joke. Yes. And everybody but talks I, I don't really think it quickly. Fits. Yeah. I don't think yeah. it fits in the 2005 version. Like you were saying, it's just supposed to be like, oh, look, they're all girls. Whereas in this, it's like everybody is supposed to be crazy and chattering and talking at the same time. I think the best example of this genre, if you want to watch a great old movie, I so highly recommend um, His Girl Friday, which has Cary Grant. And I'm going to look up who the actress is. It's also from 1940. Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. They are both uh, journalists. And it is also a romantic comedy. And it just really is the perfect example of this, like, running all around. And everyone's talking at the same time and being clever and snappy. It's so good. Highly recommend if you want another great example of this genre. Um, but, yeah, I think that's why you have characters talk. And you even see it with Lizzie and Darcy. There's a lot of banter. Yes, there's a ton of banter. The archery scene I loved. I love. I I thought they both had a lot of scope to get to know one another, to display a range of emotions, to have genuine chemistry in that archery scene mm-hmm. where she he sort of condescends to her and she sort of has the great he mansplains archery. He mansplains <laughs> archery and he and he doesn't take it amiss. He doesn't get mad. Even she says, "Oh, you're a good sport." Most men would be offended, and rightly so. Yeah, right? he actually. I think doesn't he apologize for basically yeah. trying? He was like, "Well, I can see I was incorrect yes. to uh, try." to explain this to you you clearly have it and they also used it as a setup for miss bingley to come in and to be kind of nasty to lizzie and for lizzie to get some Mm -hmm. good zingers in like darcy is going to apparently teach miss bingley how to throw darts and lizzie elizabeth gets this great line well i hope you'll learn to direct your darts with greater accuracy and it's such a great slam and miss the actress that plays miss bingley in this is also excellent she's very hateable and they give her a lot to do, especially at the end. Is it okay if I talk about another scene or do you want to talk about archery? All so I on. wanted to point out is that it's very clear that the Gwyneth Paltrow, Emma, this oh, is yes. a to that, right? Oh, yes. yes okay, good. Great. I just wanted and to make sure I was on the right page with that. Yes, yes, yes. And it's so well used in Emma and for different reasons, but it's a it's a great conceit. It's, a, it's all a metaphor, right? Mm-hmm. It was very cute. One of the things I wanted to say, too, about Miss Bingley, first of all, the guy they got to play Mr. Bingley is, like in all other adaptations, a doll, right? He is just so (laughs) cute. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because, I mean, obviously, again, two-hour movie, we just don't get the time. The romance between him and Jane, I didn't feel like really got a chance to be developed. But their little last scene was so romantic, I thought. Jane gets a really nice moment where when she's been, you know, abandoned after, after all this happens, Elizabeth goes home and Jane has a very sad soliloquy about how every day she just pretends. And it it was honestly, it was very moving and it showed the emotional heft of what had happened to her. Mm-hmm. And Bingley also gets a, a moment showing his suffering in a scene I loved where the disgrace has happened. Lydia has run off with Wickham. Miss Bingley gets a letter from some unknown person in Meryton who's detailing with glee 
the disgrace that the Bennett family is coming to. They've been disinvited from the assembly ball. That's how Elizabeth and Jane are running down the street to avoid their, you know, having to talk to anybody. Bingley and Darcy are listening to it. And Bingley is so upset he he tries, they're playing billiards. Bingley is so upset he ruins the billiard table, right? It goes under the felt. Yeah, he um, puts the cue like right through the felt yeah. on the table. Yeah, as he still loves Jane. No, he's so upset. And Miss Bingley even says to Darcy, isn't it hilarious? And Darcy says, you'd find it very hilarious if it happened to yourself. Because it happened to Georgiana, right? Like the same thing almost yes. happened to him. And so he has incredible sympathy for what's going on. And of course, so this is the motivation for him to go and save save Lydia and elevate Wickham and whatever. One thing I thought was weird and I didn't like is that before all this happens, when Darcy has heard about the elopement at first, he goes to Elizabeth and he's like, I'm here to offer my services. And she's like, oh, thanks. But what can she really say? Like, yeah, why don't you... Go out and fix this, Darcy. Like, I think it was kind of weird because it really, it was kind of pointless. The only thing it did was to allow him to explain how Wickham was a bad guy. Because, because, Maggie, after the proposal, he does not get to write his big letter. Yeah, so I, yeah, really quickly talking about that. I think that my main criticism of this film is actually the... Not pacings, like pacing overall is great, but pacing of plot from the novel, he doesn't propose to her the first time until three quarters of the way through the movie. And then two scenes later, she's decided she's in love with him. And it didn't make a lot of sense. It was total whiplash. That first proposal had to happen much earlier. I did not like how long they put that off. I thought that it did the the film a disservice. Instead, introducing this like semi estrangement at the garden party, and then the secondary thing. Yeah, it was it was weird. But then when he uh, so it's after Lady Catherine comes and Lizzie's like, I won't promise anything, and she goes back out. And we see that Darcy's with her, and he goes back in. Then he tells her about Georgiana, and despite that coming so late in the movie, after she's already decided she loves him, I think. I thought that was a really beautiful scene, the way that it's written and the way he, Olivier acts it, where he does tell her about what happened. I thought that was really stunning. I I really enjoyed it. You're right. It is a good scene. It is not perhaps crafted well within the larger plot, but it is well acted. I I mean, just, I just, uh, I guess my big problem with this is just, I don't find it believable that she would hate Darcy because it's Lawrence (laughs) Olivier. I know, right? (laughs) And, and it's like, so girl, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you because he, you're, he's an object of desire from like the beginning. Which, I, again, like in Helen Jerome's adaptation, there's a very sexy Darcy and a very weepy Elizabeth. Oh, and Helen thankfully, Jones. they got rid of the weeping Elizabeth in this adaptation. But uh, it's sort of based on this, like, yeah, he's going to be the draw. <laughs> he's going to be yeah, the sexy draw of, of this movie. I think Rear Garson is good enough that, you know, I'm kind of being hyperbolic to be like, you wouldn't believe. He, he is a snob. Like, let's be honest. He's a legit jerk to her. So, yeah, like, you do understand why. But about by halfway through the movie, her kind of objections, I guess, other than Jane, him breaking up Jane and Bingley, don't hold water anymore. <laughs> because he he isn't standoffish. Like, he is a snob, but he's still pursuing her. Like, very clearly interested in her and courting her. Except that moment where he walks away after he's been, th- you know, like, repelled by her family. The other thing is, he does he does sort of... 
you know, during the proposal, does kind of crap on her family, and that's yeah, a he, is, of, he is a jerk. He yeah, is definitely a jerk. There, there, there are these moments where you're like, uh, but at the same time, he also is clearly in love with her, which makes you root for him, right? Yeah, so maybe I'm just I'm just a sucker. Current. I'm just a sucker for him. I can't. I'm a I'm a Darcy apologist in this one. <laughs> I'm just like, all? girl, you know what? He might be a jerk, but. You can you can teach. No, it's the classic trap. You can change it. No, what am I doing? Yeah, <laughs> I'm no. classic misogyn. The classic tale of misogyny that we tell girls that you can change a man. <laughs> Do you think that he actually changes through the course of the film? This is a very good. This question. is the big thing, right? Do Darcy and Lizzie actually change? You don't see Darcy interacting with Elizabeth's family when he comes back to sort of woo her and get her. He is clearly concerned for her and for her happiness and not wanting her family to be disgraced for that reason. But you don't get a feeling that he's going to be like nice to people who are poor now, you know, like he's not going to say these cutting things unless, you know, because of his love for her. So, yeah, he doesn't go through the same revolution of character as the later Darcy's do. I 100% agree. And I just, it just kind of came to me now. I didn't even think about that when I first watched it because I was just so enjoying it. But I think that rather than having them both change and then come together at the end, we just see them both kind of understand each other as they are. They don't change. It's just that Lizzie looks past her prejudice and Darcy looks past his pride. Yes, and it's so darn cute. And then at the end, all the other girls, Kitty and Mary, are shown with potential suitors, including a man who's playing the flute. Oh my gosh, that Mary. was so like where did it these was so come from? cute? And she's singing her sang- same song that she sings she throughout the movie. The high note. <sighs> and on pitch, and she hits the high note because she found love. What? Uh, I was was confused because I thought at first that was Mr. Collins who was playing. Oh, yeah. no, And I was like, he's married. What is happening? And where did these guys come from? The Mary character, like we're saying, she's the comedy MVP, but she gets these great moments. And one of them is the moment where Mrs. Bennett says, sparkle it a little, Mary. Sparkle it a little. Oh, my God. And And she she just brightens up and, like, bats her eyes and, like, has this ridiculous smile. And and I die. A little less, Mary. A little less. And I don't know if that was the actress singing or somebody else, but the um, the sort of caterwauling, really poor, you know, like really not great performance of this song that she sings throughout the movie. I have to admit, it, it was so funny and so good that for the last two days, I've been going around singing like, thou green crested lapwing, thy screaming forbear. Like it's been in my head the whole time. And you know what it really reminded me of? But. It reminded me of that scene in the Disney Cinderella where the oh yes, sing sweet night and get. It just reminded me so much of that. It was like that same type of singing loudly and off key humor, but with Mary, it's just I don't know. She's so she's very sweet and fun in this, and I'm glad they end on a high note for her, where she just like found someone to play with her with her music. It was very cute. She's not depre- a depressed Mary. She's a happy Mary. She's just yeah. A, the I first time we see her, she just bought a new book and she's so excited about it. She's like, "Oh, Mama, I just bought the essays of blah blah blah." And you're like, "Oh, Mary, you're the best of all of us." 
I thought that Lady Catherine was really good. I loved her. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people at the end are just like, this is a total 180. It doesn't make any sense, blah, blah. But I thought it showed actual depth of character. And I thought she was really great. I thought everyone was great. It was good. This movie was pretty much firing on all cylinders. And any criticism or complaints I have just stem from kind of the basic structure. In the the mannered sort of acting of the 40s where everybody is a tad affected. I mean, and, and you know, this, you know, it's just not a modern movie. You can't expect the pacing and the cinematography to whip you up in the same way. And just the techniques weren't developed yet. And so if you can get past all that and you get into the mood. You do kind of have to get into the mood. I knew you would be great to talk about this because you, and I assume it's because your mom, just knows so much about the glamour of old Hollywood, right? Oh, I don't know about that. (laughs) Yeah, you do. You know know, all these movies, and I just really don't know anything about it. There were a couple of things that I wanted to mention just about um, having gone back and read the the chapter in The Making of Jane Austen again. Um, There are so many interesting things to know about the making of this movie, Mm. including the fact that the script was rewritten and rewritten and rewritten again. So you can learn about all these scenes that were cut. They wanted to very much add a sort of Bronte twist to Darcy, which I'm glad they got married or something. One script version reveals that Darcy was originally to have had a second archery scene that was either never shot or didn't make the cut. Part of that scene shows Darcy alone at night reliving his afternoon archery lesson with Elizabeth. He repeats their dialogue as a soliloquy, pining for her as he moves his lips. He then recites Byron's, She walks in beauty like the night. In the dark. Aww. At the same time, he ineffectually shoots arrows, including one directly up into the night sky. If it had been included, this scene would have given Olivier even more space to demonstrate, alone mm. with his audience, the depth of his passion for Elizabeth. The shades of Shakespeare here must certainly be intentional. The fact that Darcy and not Elizabeth gets a standalone scene speaks volumes about how Pride and Prejudice was being more deeply reimagined in the 1930s as a story centered on Austen's hero, not her heroine. Mm. That was a passage. That was a passage from the book. But I I like that. I I could see Olivier doing that and it would be awesome. I don't think it fits with this movie. This is not a brooding Darcy, which is one of the reasons I actually really enjoyed it. We've had a lot of brooding Darcy's. This he, he didn't brood to me. Oh, I liked it too because it allowed it to be a comedy. Which yeah, exactly. Is, which the book is. And and it doesn't take you out of your understanding as this guy is just a man who's pining at a, a normal level and not a Bronte yeah, yeah. style level. But listen to this. Another deleted scene would have taken audiences even further inside Darcy's head and in a far darker direction. Mm-hmm. The plan was to make him turn Bronte brutal. After oh. his soliloquy, he was to bump into Miss Bingley on his night walk still holding an arrow in his hand. The two of them were to have had a conversation conspiring about how to break up Jane and Bingley for Bingley's Mm. own good. This scene would have made directly visible one of Darcy's ugliest acts, described secondhand only in the original novel. Darcy's nefarious plotting against his friend's happiness would have made not only would have been made not only disturbingly visible, but directly violent. Darcy was to have said to Caroline Bingley, 
were like a pair of conspirators plotting a murder, the murder of a man's feelings. Well, seeing it has to be done, let's do it quickly. Then Darcy was to have raised the pointed half of the arrow in his hand and driven it savagely into the bark of the tree under which they had been sitting as though he were stabbing a man. He was then to have turned without a word and walked off. This episode is a darkly sexualized one, echoing a figurative rape as much as it does a figurative murder. Um, it's decidedly un Austin like. Um, but this yeah. scene was cut from the film for budgetary reasons and not because anyone had second thoughts about adding Shakespearean tragedy and Brontean shock to Austin's iconic hero. That was another direct quote from pass- from the book, The Making of Jane Austen. Weird, wild stuff. And then the other yeah. thing we Again, learned, that's a different movie and a completely different characterization I'm so of glad Darcy. it's not in there. Yeah, then, I agree. Other scripts had Darcy Bingley and uh, I guess other people going to like watch a cockfight, and then <laughs> okay. there's a monkey involved, and it was supposed to show their manliness, you know. And like you just can't, you can't do Austin that way. You, you can't play that, homie. Don't play that. Uh, yeah, I think that they made good decisions cutting that stuff out. Yeah, me, me too. <laughs> yeah, because he's not, he's not brooding, and the way he explains the Jane Bingley thing. It's also like he doesn't understand the gravity of it. So having that scene where he like likens it to a murder, the reason why he can kind of get away with it and we forgive him is because he didn't understand what he was doing, I guess. Although, I mean, he says, you know, I've been kinder to him than I have to myself, where the hypocrisy of him breaking up Jane and Bingley, but then still proposing. Yeah, he Um, sees his feelings as far, far deeper than mm-hmm. Bingley's feelings and Jane, you know, Jane's feelings. And which of course, is just he thinks that Jane like didn't really like him. That she, yeah. And like, he oh. says in his letter too to separate the the you know separate two people who had a relationship of only a few weeks pales in comparison to the other thing you've accused me of. And he sort of thinks, oh, people get their hearts broken all the time, which is very London, right? You know, there are all these like dalliances and flirtations, like that. It's very urbane to think she'll bounce back. Because London ladies would understand that your beau are not always serious. But Jane is not that kind of person. And he's kind of missing the plot there. He doesn't know Jane like Lizzie does. Yeah. I thought, did you, would you agree that the explanation of what Wickham did to Georgiana in this movie seemed much more villainous than how it is described in the book? Yes. Maybe he was just more explicit here. He was. And it was very shocking. It's not clear right away that Wickham failed with Georgiana. So at first you think... I actually got the impression that he totally boned her. (laughs) Sorry, if you don't know what we're talking about, when uh, when Darcy does tell Lizzie what happened to Georgiana, it's like, he took her away. He was going to marry her to blackmail me. And then we got them before they were married, but I th- he might even say she was ruined. I can't remember what the language is, but it is very clearly implied that she is no longer a virgin. I think that what he says is he was going to elope with Georgiana, ruin her, and then because he had ruined her, blackmail me into allowing and condoning the marriage. Oh, okay. So that sounds right. He, he says Wickham explicitly has sexual intent, and intends right. to take her virginity rather than just getting married in secret at Gretna Green because who cares yes. if Darcy approves, then the marriage is legal and Wickham gets the money. So they did make it even darker for this film. 
Right. I mean, you still doesn't really explain then why he would do it with Lydia because she doesn't have, have that any type money. of money. Yeah. But, you know, some people have struggled with that even in the novel. Like, what is the reasoning for that? But I thought that this was a much darker backstory for Georgiana than we got in the book and the other movies. Yeah. I kind of liked it because then the sympathy and the responsibility he felt for this happening to Lizzie's family felt much as strong. Do you know what I mean? Like he realizes how the stakes are and him telling her, him trusting her with this information seems more impactful. I liked that change a lot. It also made Wickham like way more villainous, which I'm always a fan of. And Wickham, villain mustache, <laughs> should have known from the first scene when exactly. he had that stash, he was a bad dude. <laughs> They have some great dialogue. Wickham is very charming in the beginning with Lydia and with Lizzie. And so you kind of like him at first. And so it is kind of a shock what he what he gets up to. I just thought this was so fun. I would definitely watch this one again. Don't yeah, you think? Me too. Yeah, me too. Yeah. How many times did you watch movie? it before this podcast? Three times. I've seen it three times in total now. Okay. I watched it once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to be in the mood. I mean, you have to be in the mood for old school glamour. I have to say that I was so moved by Olivier's performance that I rented Wuthering Heights to see him <gasps> something else. Like, and oh, that's right. Oh my God. Despite uh, He's Heathcliff, isn't he? He's like the Heathcliff. Yeah. coming. He's coming right off of both he- playing Heathcliff and, uh, playing somebody in Rebecca, DeMaurier's Rebecca. They also yes. Oh my God. And so he was seen as this brooding hero, which probably helped his portrayal as Darcy to be seen as slightly more tortured, right? Because, because people had this idea of him. Um, yes, I didn't get that at all though. I didn't see like the brooding tortured aspect of it. No, but it once, may have just been a, I didn't see it either, but it may have just been a cast in people's minds. Like he's, yeah. He's like a bad dude, but he's a sexy dude. <laughs> I well, I will say after he, the news about Lydia breaks, we do see him kind of brooding on it because I'm sure like, but he feels guilty, right? Because, oh, if I had told this wouldn't have happened. But overall, I don't. Oh, man, I think I might have to watch that, too. What did you think? I couldn't. I couldn't do it. I, <laughs> I hate Wuthering Heights. With such a passion that, um, and, you know, of course, it was the 1940s, so they didn't necessarily grab me with the filmmaking right away. So you have to have some patience when you're watching these movies. Did you actually start it? or did I you started just it. Like, I can't do it. I, wa- I watched about 15 minutes of it, and I was like, I got to bail. he was good everything else about it was Wuthering Heights which is not my jam and so I had to let it I had to cut it loose have I ever given you my Wuthering Heights confession no there was a copy of it in my high school and I was like oh I should read this classic it's just really romantic the first chapter I was like, this is terrible. <laughs> I stopped reading it. I never even got to the part where you meet, because the book opens, they're dead. Yeah. It's that guy who like wanders in off the moors. I don't yeah. even remember. I never even got to the part of the novel where Heathcliff and Catherine are alive. Well, that's I just a, pieced out after like that's such a, that's such a convention of that era that Austin actually skewers in Northanger Abbey because he yeah. comes in and then the lady's like I'll tell you a tale right and then conversations that had passed twenty years ago were minutely repeated and it doesn't make any sense stop these weird setups and you already know the story doesn't end happily so you're not thrilled about it 
I thought, you know, I had read it in high school. It was my first introduction to the Brontes. And I thought, because every man mentions the Brontes in Austin in the same breath, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going to really enjoy this. And I got, in, I was reading it and I was like, what the shit is <laughs> This sucks so hard. And I and uh, I have been enraged like, against the Brontes ever freaking since. I also I feel like had we need a Jane disclaimer. Here. If anybody out there, if you enjoy the Brontes, we're we we do not mean, you know, it's just not for us. They're we not don't the mean Yeah, they're, they're not the same thing. Totally different thing. As as we, you know, we talked about this on our 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 private Facebook pages a long time ago now. And and our friend Sarah was like, you know, don't don't yuck somebody else's yum, okay? Sometimes in a Bronte mood, sometimes in an Austin mood. And I'm like, that's fine. They are totally different things and cannot be compared. And if also, this is our podcast. I know, right? But if you're getting- So if I don't like, I can say that I don't like Bronte. (laughs) If you're reading something out and getting something out of it, and I certainly understand and believe that Jane Eyre can really be a balm to- people who are feeling left out, um, maltreated, poor and plain, you know, I, I get that, that that brings you some sort of feeling of redemption or you're, you're just invested in Jane Eyre. I get it. It wasn't like for me personally. Romance, right? Yeah. And like if you like Gothic and, you know, if you're willing to go on that Rochester ride or that Heathcliff <laughs> ride, I mean, more power to you. I mean, we all will read things that are problematic, right? Sometimes I even write things that are problematic, right? <laughs> Uh, totally get it, but um, woo, yeah, I. Okay, but Kristen, I have a proposal for you. Oh, good! I love this proposal. Uh, what if we were to do some kind of like Black Lives Matter fundraiser, something like that? And I haven't thought this through. I'm spitballing, but you know, if for example we like try to get people to pledge a certain amount of money that they'll donate. And if we get to a certain amount, you and I have to watch Wuthering Heights, the more recent <laughs> Ray Fines version. What do you think? Yes, I think we have about 500 subscribers. So I think a reasonable target will be if we can raise $200 that we will watch the movie with Ray Fines. If we can, in some insane universe, raise $300, I will read the book again. I'm going to have to read it too, right? It's not fair <laughs> if only you have to read yeah, it. Yeah, I think that you should make it 400 to read the book. Okay, 200 to watch a movie, 400 to read the book. And... I will put this on the Facebook page and you can tweet about it. Yes. Um, and maybe I can put that, like you can put fundraisers on Facebook. Yeah, so you I'll totally can. Or yeah, people can, can also just let us know if they've made a donation and we can also keep track that yeah, way if they don't that. necessarily use Facebook. Right. Uh, but I think that's fair. You know, we'll, we'll throw ourselves on that Gothic pyre <laughs> for charity. <laughs> and then get on the podcast and say all kind of mean things about it. Yeah. I, um, what, if, and, what if you end up liking it? Well, you know, what we'll have to do is read some scholarship about it because I know there's some racial things with Heathcliff, you know, and, and all this. And the other thing is, yeah, if you're not on supposed face- to be mixed race or something like that. Yeah. He's, they keep calling him a, a gypsy, which of Ugh, course. What? Yeah. There's some, there's some racial stuff there. I, I think to say that it all is, all of that is to say Maybe I should also read some scholarship or get some context. But you all, we all know. Why do we have to read this 
crap in high school. We all know it's about nature as a character and blah, blah, blah. I mean, shut. I mean, I don't, I don't care about this. But anyway, maybe my, maybe in trying to learn more about their themes, I will learn something about myself or enjoy it in some manner. So you'll never know. We'll see. And well, if that- you want, I can have Bay's mom talk to us about it because she was an English teacher and she oh. apparently loves Bronte. So. <laughs> that would be cool. That would be really cool. And, and like you said- ask her for her thoughts in an email, a little less <laughs> pressure. But we'll see. I'm sure that there are people who listen to our podcast who love uh, Wuthering Heights and would be willing to kind of... But we'll see. It all depends on you, our listeners, whether we're able to raise enough money to meet our target. So stay tuned for that. We'll put it on our social media. When yes. we're ready to get the fundraiser going. And as Maggie said, if you are not a Facebook user for whatever reason, you can also email us at first.impressions.podcast at gmail.com and just say you've donated and we'll take your word for it. So are we asking people to donate to the Black Lives Matter website directly? Oh, you know what? I think what we should say is if you want to donate to Black Lives Matter or if you want to donate to something like the bail funds, oh yeah, um, anything that serves the cause of fighting racial injustice, systemic racial injustice, we will accept. So if you, I will put a link to, you know, the main BLM website for donations on our Facebook page. But if there's another related cause or site or charity that you would like to donate to, that counts as well. We don't want to limit your activism. But uh, just let us know if you make a a donation via Twitter, Gmail, Facebook, and so we can keep you in the counting. It'll be like a church where they're like trying to get to the top of the thermometer and like blow the, like we need to find the roof, like in Sister Act. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man, let's do a mini pod on Sister Act. Do you want to? Yes, I fucking oh, want to. Oh, I'm that, so sorry. in. Okay, now that you're working <laughs> at home again. Yeah. I can watch it tomorrow. I have tomorrow off. Oh, that, yes, let's watch it soon. I need it. It's balm for my soul. I need it. I watched that YouTube video where it's just that number all the time. I didn't I get, like, share a it recently. I did. And you know what else I watch is um, Judy Garland's performance of Get Happy in, um, in whatever that movie was, Summer, Summer Something. Uh, yeah, it's so good. Like, depending what, what, on how long you're stuck at home, maybe I can introduce you to some golden age movie musicals. That's, oh, yeah. the, that's what I, that's what I really like. I mean, you were saying like, I know about glamour Hollywood. It's really, I just love, uh, like 1940s golden age musicals. Yeah. I mean, you can cut all of this discussion out if you want. I don't know. People love it. People love us. <laughs> you, know what I, you know what I feel so bad about Maggie is that our Sanditon episode has like three or 400 more downloads than anything and then it should have any right to based on our stats. And I, I thought this was so weird for so long, but then I realized people were Googling Sanditon because they were into the show, finding our episode, downloading it, and probably being really freaking disappointed because all we talk, about, talk about yeah, is like <laughs> the corn laws and the state of medical science. And I go on a long rant about like medical science today. And like, I'm sure people were like, nope. <laughs> Um, well, I also, I joined the Save Sanditon Facebook group, which is super active also on Twitter. Um, and so I like name checked our podcast a couple times. So that might be how people saw it as well. If you want, I mean, I would be willing to do a Sanditon rewatch if you actually want to do a, did we do a whole episode just about the miniseries? No, we didn't. We just talked about the first three episodes because by the time we did our podcast, only the first had aired. So yeah, we could do like just a fan podcast on the show, which I love. Um, You know about the pineapple, right? 
Oh, yes. We talked a lot about the pineapple. Okay. And do not use it as a uh, yeah, support of Sanditon. Okay. okay. So as long as you yes. know about that. Yes, I do know about that. And I actually agree with that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, I mean, the problematic aspect of it is explicitly referenced in the show. Yeah. So I'm not sure why people thought it was appropriate to use. Exactly. I, I will say, is- though, I'm like, I am from Virginia. There are pineapples all the place here because it's a symbol of Southern specifically Virginia hospitality, but the reason why is because of the triangle trade. So, you know. Yeah, and I mean, some other interesting things have come out where Crystal Clark, the actress who plays Miss Lamb, mm-hmm. has come out and, and said, you know, in one of the original scripts, uh, Miss Lamb, Georgiana Lamb, is, is saying to um, Otis Molyneux, right, like, you care more about freeing the slaves than you care about me, right, because he's Ugh. in Sons of Africa. And she had to, like, take people aside and say, like, no, she wouldn't have felt this way. Like, this is ridiculous. She's not a narcissist. She actually cares about the plight of other enslaved people. Um, and so it's there's a lot of stuff in Sanditon that we need to be listening to Crystal Clark and we need to be listening to other actors of color about how to handle these things. If, we, if we're not even already there already, you know. And she's also been very open about the... She said, I will not... If there is a season two... I would not come back unless there were people of color on the writing staff. If there were people of color running and making the show because apparent there weren't any. So they wanted it. They got to get all the credit of like having a woman of color in a Jane Austen adaptation. And then that's it. Like just her, nobody else. None of the people even writing the story. It was all white folks, which is honestly infuriating. Yeah. So good for, I'm I'm glad she said that. Good for her. Yeah. I'm definitely with her. Do we need to go to the wheat chief today, Kristen? Yes, we can go to the Wheat Chief if you're willing to put up with the fact that I haven't even opened the mailbox. We have to talk about our fan, Audrey, who emailed us with a fascinating question about biopics of Jane Austen. Have we watched Becoming Jane? What are our thoughts on Austen biopics? And um, she mentioned, you know, she thought it was curious how Becoming Jane, in a way, seems to be a mashup of sorts of the characterizations from Austen's. And I think that's fine in a way. Well, here's my, here's my larger thing. I am not comfortable with biopics of Jane Austen's life. If you are comfortable with them, everybody's going to feel differently, and I support that. I think that it's not too strong a word to use to sit, call it disrespectful, I know Mm. that if I came back and people were writing fictionalized romances where, you know, people had, they they thought, oh, she knew this guy and dated him and it changed her forever and it made her think in these different ways. And I'd be like, who are you? You weren't there. I would be very frustrated. I don't know if the real Jane Austen would feel that way or if she'd appreciate people respecting the heartbreak of when Tom LaFroy, you know, didn't marry her or whatever. But I am not comfortable with it. I know a lot of people have seen them and enjoyed them, and I, uh, that's totally fine. I don't judge other people, but that's what I think. I was also, by the way, infuriated by Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer. Oh, come uh, on. <laughs> no, it's not okay. It's not okay. I have, you know, go watch the six-hour Ken Burns documentary about the human costs of the Civil War and then come back and make a joke about Abraham Lincoln being a vampire slayer. I, I do not sign on to that. But anyway, so you can see I'm a zealot on this particular issue. I bring that up because I know people don't feel the same way I do. 
So Maggie, you said you had seen Becoming Jane, right? Oh yeah, I saw it when it came out in the theater. I listen. I think any biopic about Jane Austen is fiction because there's just so many things we don't know about her life. So I don't see it as actually being about Jane Austen. Do you know what I mean? It's just yeah. like someone who was a writer who lived back then. It's who so far. Been? It's so divorced from the actual person because we just don't know that. I I don't see it as being like disrespectful or offensive like you. I just think it's kind of like why. Uh, I mean, but for the why as to why Becoming Jane with Anne Hathaway was made, I mean, you know, that was Jane Austen fever that right. time. Right. So it definitely makes sense that someone was like, ooh, let's make another like Regency romance. Except we'll have Jane Austen herself be the character because of all these things that happened in her life. But we don't know. There's just so much we don't know about her. So I mean, maybe I, maybe. I don't I don't take it personally. If if that's if you really like that film, I haven't seen it in a long time. Um. I just remember it being kind of sad, so it's, I'm not eager to revisit it. Uh, if that's your thing, that's cool. I just kind of see it as I don't really get the point. We are we are all fascinated by Jane Austen the person, and and understandably so. So I get I get it. I get the interest, but at the same time, I'm uncomfortable with it. Yeah, I totally see where you're coming from. Um, so I so guess I'm... the answer to the question is we probably, I will pro- I wasn't planning to revisit it. Kristen's not comfortable with it. So I don't think it'll be something that, you know, we like watch <laughs> and cover unless Kristen decides she's desperate for content. Uh, yeah, I guess. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> unless we raise like $1,000 for Black Lives Matter. <laughs> oh my God. Be... Yeah, okay, revisiting. Watch us raise a thousand dollars. Well, then you'll have to do it. So I'll have my iced coffee. You can have, you can get drunk and we'll watch Becoming Jane if we get a thousand dollars. And then um, we did have some kind people like contact us. Oh, uh, our listener Harriet enjoyed our episode on the 2005 PMP, which I always love hearing. And she did not see the American version. So she heard people talk about, this this finale, this ending scene, and she went to see it. She looked it up and watched it, and then she was sorry she did. So Harry, I'm <laughs> sorry um, that you had to see that as well. She's an Australian, and oh, and she has her own Jane Austen podcast. So there's a podcast out there called Reading Jane Austen, and she's going through Pride and Prejudice right now, cha- like chapter by chapter, which sounds awesome oh, and she's fun. also doing commentary on McFadden's Darcy yeah so check that out it's it's called reading Jane Austen um I you know I'm not a podcast listener but totally think other people should be listening to all the Jane Austen podcasts one more final shout out to Olivia who just found us and she's enjoying our analysis of Mansfield Park and oh, of course, everybody <laughs> loves the Mansfield Park episodes. <laughs> yeah. And so she's saying she was reading the book and and she enjoyed it so much, but she couldn't figure out why it was the least popular work. So she took a look and found our podcast and hooray, another Mansfield Park person. Yay, Olivia. Welcome Yay. to the cult. We're so welcome to the cult you. of Mansfield Park. <laughs> yes. I would say that I am the person who like visits the cult. And just like, you know, I can appreciate what you all get out of this. And I see where you're going, but I'll probably just go home. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) So I think that is probably it. Lots of fun letters. We love hearing from you guys. As always, don't hesitate to message us on Facebook, email, tweet at us. Uh, Kristen, what's our Twitter uh, we have a new, we have a Twitter. It's at first 
impress pod is I couldn't do first impressions podcast because it's too long for the Twitter handle. So yeah, so I, it's just me tweeting about Jane Austen things and you're welcome to follow us and say hello and hopefully that'll be cool. Yes, I do not use the Twitter. <laughs> Tis a step too far for social media. I use uh, Facebook and Insta. We, you know what we got to do? We have to review the um, Francis O'Connor Mansfield Park. We already did, didn't we? No, we reviewed. We reviewed the Billy Piper. Wow, I could have sworn we did. Wow, I can't believe we haven't done that. No, because you mean the Jane Austen biopic that they uh, for Yes, and I, that is what I'm going to bring up. I was like, people, <laughs> people are fascinated by Jane Austen. They're trying to even insert her into her own stories. So um, I think one of the reasons we haven't done it is I haven't trusted myself because I will be very severe upon it, but I also feel like people who make art should not should be respected and shouldn't be crapped all over and should be supported. Except um, for the Bronte. You know, they're dead, so I don't <laughs> they're care. Dead. Um, so is Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> His memory lives on. That's true. Um, so, but anyway, uh, no, I know that's very inconsistent. I, I just, yeah. You're I know. Be, you know what? We're human. You're allowed to be inconsistent. You can like one thing and feel one way about something and then something similar. Yeah, and, like. and presumably, I mean, this is my podcast. I get salty on it all the time. Presumably, my listeners want to hear my invective. Um, and enjoy it. And oh, I so love it. Personally. We'll have to try to walk. I'll have to try to walk a line where I'm not too mad. Um, by the way, in the past, I have referred to this version as the Frances McDormand version, which I am extremely That's embarrassed a completely about. Completely different actress. It is not. It is a completely different actress. I just have a really hard time with proper names, and I'm constantly getting actors with the same names confused, or even people with the same names, like Aaron Paul and Ron Paul. Like they're they're two. They're wait, a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Aaron Paul, the actor from Breaking Bad, yes. and Ron Paul, the politician. I say one name when oh, I mean Christ. the other <laughs> name. I do. I say one name when I mean the other name, and it's embarrassing. And this happens to me all the time. And I, I'm just so glad that Jack Nicholas and Jack Nicholson are no longer in the public discourse. And I will not make my a freaking fool of myself once again. So anyway, so I apologize for everybody who's like, what? When I said that, it, it's just me. I do that kind of thing all the time. Um, you know so anyway, Francis O'Connor. Go ahead. I have to tell you who I mess up all the time. Who? I mix up Andrew Lloyd Webber, the composer, and Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect. <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Wright. <laughs> and Nate is like, who the fuck are you talking about? I'm like, you know, the guy who wrote Cats. And apparently designed Falling Water. That guy. So they're not even in the same ballpark. And they just have three names each. And I just, oh, I make this weird hybrid name all the time. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only person. No, I but I do I do know the difference between Aaron Paul and Ron Paul. <laughs> I know the difference is just the name. The names are easy to mix up. And um and um Paul Ryan. That's the third guy I mix up with those other two. So Is that the actor too? The one who's oh, dead? Paul Ryan the um the former like speaker of the House of Representatives. Oh, who am I thinking of? Who's the guy from the Fast and the Furious movies? Who's oh like, my god. Um <laughs> Ryan Walker is it Paul Walker? Uh, yeah, Paul Walker. <laughs> 
People need to stop being named with P's and R's. Hey, no Paul's and no Ryan's. <laughs> now this has gone into, I shouldn't, I, look at me. I was throwing so much shade at you and then I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Mr. Oh God, I hated him. The guy who was in Congress. Blech. I'll have to take this out. Now we've gotten political again. Ever. What a piece of shit. You can leave that in if you want. I don't care. I know. Anyway, everyone, thank you so much for listening. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Kristen Maggie's Nutrition, Health Sciences, (laughs) Politics podcast. And we will just, I guess, leave it there for today. We'll post details of our upcoming fundraiser. And we have delighted you long enough. Indeed. Bye.